Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for all the things that you've given to us and for allowing us to come here and uh, study more about your word and specifically about uh, the ascension and your second coming. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be edified and grow in our knowledge of you and our adoration and worship of you. And in your son's name we ask. Amen. So this week we'll be discussing, uh, we'll go, go through this, the ascension again. We started doing it last week and we ran out of time. And then we'll be talking about the judgment with the second coming. Um, so last week I kind of started mapping and just like discussing what it means, why it is so important that Christ ascended into heaven and how to even make sense of that. Um, I think oftentimes we don't really understand why Jesus had to go to heaven and it really is this obscure idea. Like if he saved us, why is he going to heaven? Um, but... I really emphasize like like that this in the ancient world they had this understanding of the whole universe in some sense as being this cosmic temple like the ancient Israelites had their temple in Jerusalem but they kind of envisioned that that was just a small miniature like a micro machine version of the universe it was a miniature model of the universe itself where there were all these different Distinctions and all these different places um, being described by the various different courts in the temple, by the various different places. Like there's the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And then outside that you would have the Court of the Priests, the Court of Israel, the Court of Women, and then you go out to the Gentiles. And then outside of that was outside of God's special and unique presence. And... People did not have direct access to God. The, only the high priest on the, on the Day of Atonement would come into the Holy of Holies where that unique present, the Shekinah glory, was. And only they could do that. And then the next court was the holy place where the priests were. And then they had a court of priests. And eventually you had a place where only men could be. And then the women could, only, could not even go there. And if you were a Gentile, you had to be in the outer courts. So there was this uh, there's a vision that this was how people had to relate to God, and this was how the universe is actually established, that God was in the highest heavens. You see that in all over the scripture, that, um, that the whole world is being described as a temple, where heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Or we also read that Mount Zion was, was God's very footstool, where he's in the heavens, and, and that is his throne, and his feet, as it were, would be on Mount Zion, this holy hill. And you had in the holy place the cherubim covering the altar of mercy as they were covering God's very own feet. And that's where he was. And his footstool was in Jerusalem at this temple. And if you remember way back from the first quarter, Adam was given this mandate to, to pattern and mimic after God what God was doing, that he was eventually supposed to follow this pattern of working six days and resting on the seventh day and bringing the whole world into this glory, bringing the whole world into what God had decreed for mankind. But obviously we know he failed and he failed to reach God's glory and the world was then brought under this 
whole shroud and this whole blanket of sin and death. And we see that that, that is what the whole world is subjected to. Um, but, but the goal from the beginning of the world was that someone, some, a representative of our flesh, would be in God's holy presence and bring, bring the whole world into that glory. Bring the whole world into the heavenly, the highest heavens where God's perfect will and his love was complete and bring that to the whole world. And that was the goal that eventually heaven and earth would come together like we see at the end of Revelation where the heavenly Jerusalem is descending to the earth and it's transforming everything into glory. And that was what Adam was supposed to do. He was supposed to work those six days and then bring his offering of himself and his righteousness into God's temple and God would declare it's very good and glory would shine out throughout the universe. Um, but as we see, like the world descends into chaos, sin and death and Satan is even in God's courtroom, the sanctuary in the heavens and he's there accusing the saints day and night and he's there and he's, he's the new taskmaster of the world where we see that Paul talks about in Ephesians, like we read last week, that he is the prince of power of the air who's ruling all the sons of disobedience through their passions. And he runs this world like, like, like Pharaoh did the, the Israelites as a taskmaster where the wages of their sin is death. And so that's the whole, the whole universe is subjected to that. Everything below the heavens is now put under this rule of sin and decay. Um, but Christ descends into that chaos. His descent in his incarnation is coming down into that very world where he's coming from the highest heavens and he's entering into our world of sin and death and decay that they understood as Sheol. They understood as, as this dark place of death that had, that had opened up like you have this, these really weird images in the book of Revelation where this, the bottomless pit is like opened up and all these demons and things come out of it. And we're like, whoa, what is going on there? Well, the whole world is being invaded and allowed to be taken over in some sense by the demonic because of Adam's sin and him coming into alliance with the devil. Um, it's kind of trippy, but that's kind of like a lot of the imagery that we're reading in the book of Revelation and a lot of the things that we're seeing is that God hands over the world for time to the sin and death and decay. But Christ enters into that very world. He has to come from outside of it. Our hope can't come from inside this world of sin and death. So someone from heaven has to come and enter into the very lowest parts of the earth, as Paul says in First in Timothy, in order to redeem everything that's in this world of death and chaos. Um, and so with, with the ascension, Christ is, his, his resurrection shows that God accepts his sacrifice. His resurrection shows that God is accepting what this new second Adam is doing to redeem the whole cosmos, to redeem the whole universe. And so his ascension is him finally going into the Holy of Holies 
and bringing that sacrifice and God receiving it. That's the backdrop of what, we're, what we talked about a little bit last week, that this, this really overlooked aspect of salvation, we call it the ascension, is absolutely essential for our salvation um, because we have to have someone going into God's presence and offering that sacrifice that we need. And that's why the author of the Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 6, 19-20 says that that is the anchor of our salvation. That's our, the anchor of our hope is Christ going into the Holy of Holies into God's presence and offering this sacrifice into God's, the holy heavenly temple that was not made with hands, that the earthly temple was just a shadow. Um, sorry, that was, that was a pretty quick overview of what we talked about last week. Um, but does that make sense so far? Any questions before we move on? Like that's, they kind of envision the world like this, that this was, that the world was under this rule of sin and decay and death, that it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth, that it's kind of in some sense run by karma. Under, under Satan, the world is run by karma. But, it's, but the wicked are, are prospering and they're getting ahead by violence. And we kind of have, it's a skewed vision of that covenant of works that Adam was originally created in. But now it's like all twisted and under sin and decay. So we think that this is how the universe operates. And Christ comes into that very world of sin and decay and death and starts to undo that. But he first has to go into heaven with our very flesh glorified before he can actually then send the Holy Spirit down to us and begin this this ground campaign to conquer the universe. Um, God could have, like, if God wanted just to like end everything, He could have come in judgment and just decimated everything. But there would be no salvation. There would be no hope for salvation. So God has to come and enter into and put Himself under this world of sin and decay, enter into our hell, enter into our, our sheol, into the outer darkness itself in order to, to then start lifting everyone up into the heavens and transforming the universe. Like, and that was the only way that could happen. So it's like so essential that this is what is happening. And as we mentioned last week, the language of the ascension is very similar to like what you see in like Return of the King when Aragorn is, as after this massive victory against the forces of evil and, sign, and like you have uh, Mount Doom there and... Mordor and Sauron, the Dark Lord, after his great victory, he's coming back into Minas Tirith, into this capital, and there, everyone is just decked out, and he's giving out all these good gifts, and he's just blessing everybody, and everyone's just like a feast, and it's just like this marvelous thing. Um, well, that's what the ascension was in the ancient world. That's how they envisioned it, that, that he's ascending to the throne. Um, if you have ever seen any movie like about like Queen Victoria or any of the queens of England or kings of England when they're coming in and you have all this music just blasting and everyone just looks awesome and it's just incredible scene of majesty and glory and then they start appointing governors and they start giving out all these different things and they start giving all these gifts to all the faithful servants of the kingdom that's what's going on in the ascension Christ has to ascend that before he starts giving out all those gifts um, 
So that's a lot of the imagery and the language that is being used. And Jesus, as we're saying, had to fulfill all that the Father called Adam to do, but he failed. Jesus had to accomplish all that. And he's he's brought... Um, he's, he's, his whole goal is to once again bring mankind back into God's presence, into his holy of holies, and then start shedding abroad um, the perfect love that God has had for eternity. And that's, that's very much just depicted by this understanding of the holy of holies, by the highest heavens. Um, and and um, all those those these terms are just God's God's way of accommodating to the ancient world and how they understood things to depict this magnificent transcendent reality. Um, he's coming down in baby talk, and he's speaking in a way that the ancient world would have understood by all these different bizarre images to us, but they're all picturing this one thing, this one. Movement that's, that, that we can really make sense of that God is ultimately trying to bring his perfect love and glory into the whole world. Um, but he's using all these strange images to, to do that because that's what it made, would have made sense to the ancient thinker, to the ancient person. Um, so Christ comes into our world and he has to descend into sin and death in order to then bring people to the heavens, in order to bring every one of us who's under that sin, death, and decay into God's presence by conquering it. Um, so Christ comes from this realm of perfect love in the highest heavens, this realm that is untouched by all this evil, but he has to descend into the clutches of the devil in order to free us from it. So this, this is the whole understanding of redemption from the slave market of sin. The whole world is a slave market of sin and decay where Satan is the Pharaoh and he's the taskmaster and Christ has to come down and as a free, innocent, loving sacrifice to suffer for the condemned. How many of you have seen uh, or read the C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia? And you have that wonderful scene where Aslan dies, but he comes back to life. And he's got this wonderful scene where he's talking to, to Susan and Lucy. And they're like, we saw you die. What happened? They're like, what's going on? And he has this wonderful uh, speech where he tells them that, you know, the, the witch, had she looked back and seen the deeper magic that was written there, that was actually the foundation of the universe, she would have seen that had someone that was innocent suffered for the guilty, that all of this sin, death, and decay would become undone. All that rebellion would have, would have just been vanquished. And Aslan is saying that deeper magic, that love, that sacrificial love is the heart of the universe that is just clouded because we're in this. But behind it, above it, in the heavens, sits God on his throne. And, and the deeper reality, the deeper magic, as it were, is that sacrificial love, is that, is that pure love that can't be touched, that beauty that cannot be touched by evil. 
And that's what Christ is doing. He's coming under, and Satan, you know, like to, to people who don't have pity and mercy, like pity doesn't make sense. Mercy doesn't make sense to evil tyrants. Um, Satan couldn't, can't even conceive of the idea that God, who's the, who has completely sovereign and, and impervious and just like wonderful, would even do this wonderful, this, do this, do this thing because Satan, his imagination can't go beyond that. So like you had that wonderful passage in, in 2 Corinthians that says like, had the rulers of this age understood what God had ordained before the universe began, before the foundation of the world, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory because they, because they, they didn't get it. They didn't realize that, that God coming into this world and sacrificing himself, he would undo sin and death and the slavery that Satan had us under by doing that. And so they come in and they grapple at Jesus and they crucify him and kill him. But because he was innocent and he did this willingly and, and, and he suffered for us, it undid that cycle of karma and vengeance. It undoes that cycle of evil that the world had been subjected to. Um, and Christ then ascends into the glory, into the Holy of Holies, before we do, because he has to go there and give that sacrifice before we can then enter into God's presence. He has to do that. Otherwise, as sinners, we'd be burned away by God's perfect holy love, and we could not abide his presence. But because Christ is doing that, going first ahead of us, he's making the way safe for, for us to be in God's presence. Does that make sense so far? I know there's a lot. Um, so the ascension is really bringing this new reality to the universe that has never existed before. It's a new reality. As a man, as holy man, Jesus is entering into the Holy of Holies, into the highest heavens, above even the courtroom where Satan was, and he is being given all authority on, on earth and in heaven. So all authority is given to the second Adam in the highest heavens so that he can start cleaning the cosmic universe, the temple. He's starting to cleanse everything of sin and death, but he has to begin in the heavens because Satan was even there. Satan was there in the courtroom accusing us and saying, look at all these sinners. Um, they, they deserve your wrath. They deserve your judgment. But now God is seating him is seated Christ and put him at the at the right hand of God, the place of authority and power, and there's no one that can accuse us. You have this these amazing scenes in Revelation 12, and then even in John, where they say that I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning, and in Revelation 12 you have this amazing scene where there's this war going on in heaven and Satan is cast out. So God is starting this new thing and he starts in the heavens cleansing the heavens from satan and the evil that had been done so that all that is there is god's perfect sacrifice so no one can accuse us no one can condemn us which is why paul goes to such lengths to say in romans 8 that like who is to condemn us that there's nothing in heaven or above or any angels or demons nor heights nor depths nor principalities or powers nothing can separate us from the love of god that is in christ jesus it's because he's ascended into that place, the highest courtroom, 
that no, nothing is higher than him. There's nothing that is, there's no higher court of appeals. Um, so Christ, as the second Adam, is beginning again to unite all things in heaven and earth and bringing us to the glory that we were made for. Um, what a wonderful thing. And, that, and so the ascension, what does that really mean for us today? I, know, I mean, all, all that I've said means a lot for us today, but... <laughs> um, so let's break this down a little bit more, I guess. Um, so in earlier ages, in Old Testament Israel, no one could have access to God directly. No one. I mean, even in some sense, what was going on in the ancient sacrifice when the, in the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go before it, it was just, it was still veiled. It was still not even God's direct access. Um, it, because atonement really wasn't being made. It was just holding off God's judgment and it really was not making a sacrifice for sin in human flesh. So even then they did not have direct access to God and it could never cleanse the conscience of any worshiper, as the author of the Hebrews says. Uh, the blood of bulls and goats could never do that. It could never cleanse us from our sin and, and our guilt and give us that direct access to God so the reason so Jesus descends into this world for that very reason to cleanse our consciences before God so that we can worship him as we were made to be and and come to God directly because God himself came to us not not some just angel or anything else but the second person of the trinity came to us and is bringing us to direct access to the father um through his work. So Jesus rose from the depths of sin and death and entering into our hell, and he rose victorious because the grave couldn't hold an innocent man. And he ascends on high at the Father's right hand, where he's continually serving us for our good before the Father. And the heavenly hosts are just like singing his praise um, because human second Adam, God himself in human flesh, is now there bringing the sacrifice that God so delighted and wanted. God, his his whole purpose was for that very thing, so that he could see someone in human flesh before him and, and, and praise him for what he's done. And that's what we have in Jesus. Um, with the ascension, the devil has been thrown from the courtroom and he can no longer condemn us because of what Jesus has done. Um, as heirs of the heavenly kingdom that God is constantly p- promising, we have an advocate with the Father. We can have that direct access that all of our prayers are going right to him, and he's hearing everything, and our very, our very human flesh is in heaven immortal, no longer able to perish, and he's constantly making intercession for us. And that's and that's amazing things because like God our salvation is not something that just happened in the past, accomplished, where it really did, but Christ is still interceding for us. He's preserving us. That we would we would fall a million times a day if Jesus wasn't daily preserving us by his strength. And that's what the author of the Hebrews is constantly saying. We have someone who's gone behind the, behind the veil 
he's our anchor that is holding us and preserving us. And he's sending his spirit and as a down payment so that that glory of heaven has started to be born inside of us. And, and he's in heaven and his promise is in us and there's nothing that can separate us from that. And he's preserving us by his strength. Otherwise we'd fall again and again and again. Um, and the ascension really strikes at the way the, the heart of the way the universe works. The logic of our age where we think that what goes around comes around. Um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. All of that is upended by grace. That that is actually the deeper magic. That is actually the deeper way the universe that the eyes of faith, or the, the, our eyes of living by sight often get clouded by um, because we're still kind of in this realm of sin and decay. But the eyes of faith, because we see Christ at the right hand of God, we realize that this is the end of all things. That this is really going to be what happens, that God and his love and his, and his perfection is going to win. It's going to win. Um, so instead of receiving what we deserve for our cosmic rebellion against God, we have been seated, as Paul says, above all the rulers of this present evil age. Because we're in Christ, all the people, all the rulers of, the, of this age of sin and decay are underneath our feet because we're in Christ. So we don't have to be dominated by them. We don't have to be dominated by the fear of death like we were because we are in Christ. That's why Paul is saying, look to him and think about him. Put your eyes on him because Christ is seated in this place that is above every angelic being, every demonic being, anything that's like a spiritual, supernatural being in this universe we are above that by Christ. And we no longer have to fear death or dying in obscurity. We no longer have to fear death and dying without meaning. Um, we don't have to fear a meaningless life. That in some sense, the sin that so burdens us and weighs us down and that death and decay that weighs us down, that we think is denying us the life that we so want, the glory that is, that we were made for, even maybe just happiness in this life, we're not going to get what we deserve. Like that's what the ascension means, is that we don't, we're not going to get what we deserve and that grace is the way of the universe. Uh, what goes around comes around has been killed and that's no longer how things are operating in this universe. Um, so the ascension changes everything, that Christ has broken that world cycle of shame and death. And Christ has actually put everyone to open shame by showing that love, that sacrificial love and grace to sinners like us. Um, his mercy stops the mouth of the wicked. And, and the way he does it is, is just as important as, how, as the fact that it's done. As I mentioned before, like 
had Christ wanted to squash his enemies and finish everything when sin entered the world, he could have done that in judgment. But there would have been no salvation. There would have been no redemption that happened. Um, But the manner in which Jesus does this is just as important because he does it by this loving sacrifice where he removes his glorious crown, the glory that he had with the Father from all eternity, and he enters into this world um, by his, his loving self-sacrifice, which is, which is like we turn the term agape in the New Testament. It's that complete self-sacrificial love that goes to any lengths. Um, and that is, that is God's character and who he is. And so his death is opening up this new door, and him ascending into heaven opens this new door because he's gone into the Holy of Holies for new beginnings for forgiveness, for freedom from our past actions, freedom from our shame. Um, And there's this new thing that's happening in the universe where our very weakness, you know, because we've been given the Spirit, because we're united to Christ, our weakness is resurrection power. Um, What does that mean? Jesus' death and him coming in this sacrificial love, he breaks the way of the universe where it was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and him willingly sacrificing himself breaks the power of Satan over us so that being united to Christ, we are now a part of that new reality of love the deeper magic of the universe that we're mentioning that we are now all part of. Um, We are able by Christ's spirit to participate in that same love that undoes death. Christ purifies us by his blood in the Holy of Holies. He cleanses our consciences and then he pours out his spirit on us And so our suffering and pain in this life is not because of karma. It's not because of God's displeasure on us. Um, Rather, Paul says that our suffering is our glory. How crazy is that? Like that, like that, it doesn't make any sense. But what, what, what is, what is he saying? Um, He's saying that as we are united to Christ by faith, our suffering is a participation in the love, in that life of Christ. Um, that we, by our agape, our self-sacrificial love, because we have the power of the Spirit, are freed, even in this world of sin and decay, to undo shame through forgiveness, to undo evil through grace. Paul specifically uses these terms in Ephesians where he says, you can give grace to your hearers you can redeem the time because the days are evil. Why? Because Christ has ascended. He's given us his spirit of the Holy of Holies. And that power is now at work in us so that we can literally buy back the time from the slave market of sin by our good actions. Like, wow. Sorry, like that was just like mind-blowing. It's because he's made this, this crack has opened up and he's pouring down that the love from the Holy of Holies into this world by his spirit 
that perfect perfection that he had from the beginning of, from before the foundation of the world, it's now being given to us so that everything that we do has meaning and purpose. Which is why, like, if you remember back to Joel's sermon several weeks ago, um, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's, he's like, has this wonderful saying, he's like, therefore be unmovable and, and, and steadfast in your good works, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Uh, because, why? Because everything that he said before, Christ has been made the spiritual man that Adam should have been. He's gone into the Holy of Holies and he's giving us all the benefits like a pinata. Like, and, and he's the pinata and his good gifts are being poured out into the universe that we're now partaking of by faith. So, um, that's why Paul can say that our glory is in our weakness, that Christ may be made manifest in this world because we're united to him. And in our weakness, when we show that self-sacrificial love, we are showing, that's Christ at work in us. That's the hope of glory. And we're actually undoing karma. We're undoing that that eye for an eye, for tooth for tooth. And that's the new thing of the universe. And, and I'm just tripping out, sorry. Um, the, the, there's a new, that's why Paul is saying that we are now the temple of the living God. There's a new temple and a new thing that's going on where the spirit is being poured out and our bodies are the temple of the living God. And we can go out into this world and have that forgiving presence, that absolving presence that Christ had. Um, and we can be prophet, priests, and kings before everyone and absolve them of their sins and forgive them and have that gracious presence and bring Christ to them. Um, and and that's happening like in a really amazing way. We'll get to this hopefully in the next couple of weeks when we talk about what, the, what it means to be the church. But the keys of the kingdom are what, what, what Jesus says are the very tools that are opening up heaven. They're the, they're the keys of the kingdom, word and sacrament, because those are the things that, that Jesus said, when you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven. The, instead of just going to the Temple Mount and Mount Zion, Mount Zion, that's the only place you could connect with God. Anywhere where the preaching of the gospel is and the sacraments happen, a new terror is opening up into this present evil age and God's mercy and grace is pouring through it. And anywhere that's happening is where God's presence is, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. So like that's the, the cosmic change that's going on. Um, so word and sacrament, as shorthand, so all those things are coming down from heaven, the Spirit's pouring those things out, and that's the epicenter of the kingdom of God. And then it goes out like a waterfall into our daily lives. The Spirit is sanctifying us so that everything that we do, so that's like a nice circle, and then our daily lives get wider and wider. And then we have to come back and get replenished. And we come back and get those gifts again so that we can go bring them out into the world and bring that grace and light into the world. Um, and that's like that's the ascension. That also is what the ascension means for Paul, for the New Testament, and and for the, the Apostles' Creed. That 
there's this new reality that's breaking out, and eventually the second coming is exactly what the like the psalmists talk about, and, and that, that the heavens will be rolled back like a scroll, and the distinction between heaven and earth will be non-existent, and the heavens will come down, and, and the whole world will be filled with God's glory. Um, and so right now, the church, as we come together around the preaching and, and, and we're being formed into the new temple of God, we're, we're then being, being made the new body of Christ and being knit together so that then we can go out in our daily lives and vocations as the very body of Christ, participating in that same love that Christ entered the world in. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's like the ascension. That, that, that is why it's such a radically new thing that's happening and why, how amazing that is. He had to do this, and it's amazing. That's why Jesus said, it's good that I go away so that I can send the Spirit, another comforter, to you. Otherwise, this ground campaign couldn't happen of him conquering the universe and starting to cleanse things from the inside out and sending his spirit into our hearts. Um, and, and that's what's going on right now. Like This is the time of salvation that we're, we're going through while Jesus is constantly pouring out those things that he's done until the second coming, from whence he shall come, you know, to judge the living and the dead. That when that happens, when that zero hour comes, when uh, the nuclear clock hits 12, you know, like, then there's no more time. That, that's the day of salvation is, is, is ending. And then comes the final judgment. Um, that, that, that'll, that'll be a an amazing reality, but a scary reality as well. So the final judgment is is portrayed as this mo- moment when um, the king is coming back into his realm that he just conquered, and we're being all called to you know bow the knee to Jesus, and he's coming in, and those who don't do it he's going to start separating and start bringing in that judgment. And he will further cleanse the whole universe and make it the place that he has destined the universe for. Um, and what we have merely as a beginning on inside of us, the glory that's given us by the Spirit, will, be, will then transform our bodies. And our redemption will be complete when our bodies are raised in the same immortal glory that Jesus has, what he is now, we will then be. Um, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is given us as a guarantee of that victory, that coming day, when we, where we will be seen as on the side of Jesus, in Christ. No longer in the, the ledger of sin, death, and decay in Adam, but we'll be in Christ. And we're on that side of the table. Um, and this final judgment kind of can freak a lot of people out, I think. Um, it, it can be very, it's going to be something that just doesn't make sense to us that God would 
in some sense, condemn all these people. Um, and in many ways, we look at many things throughout the Bible and we kind of get, can get freaked out about maybe um, all the innocent people, quote-unquote, dying in the Old Testament. God commanding the destruction of all these cities in the book of Joshua, in the conquest of Canaan. And, and those things kind of really upset our modern sensibilities. Um, but if we don't understand the big picture of what we, as we've gone through the whole picture of the Bible, that everyone is in cosmic rebellion against God. Everyone has made that treaty with Satan. And as in this world of sin, death, and decay, um, no one is innocent. There's not a single person who's innocent. Um, then that's not going to make sense. Like the, the coming judgment won't make sense. But God is, is so overbounding in this mercy and his grace that he's allowing this time of salvation to happen. And he's coming again. And, and, and Jesus is, some of the, is one of the biggest voices in the Bible who speaks of the second coming and the judgment in more stark and harsh terms than anyone in the Bible. So if we like the, what what happened in the Old Testament is going to pale in comparison to that day. Um, this last battle when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, he is going to come and he's going to separate. It uses this, this picture of sheep and goats, where he's going to separate them. That the sheep, those who are in his fold, though his people, will go into eternal life, while the goats will be sent to eternal punishment. Um, some of the most vivid descriptions of hell and the last judgment come actually from Jesus. And if Jesus didn't have those things in the Bible and say those things, we might even be justified in questioning the eternal torment of hell. Um, but Jesus announces, said, do not be afraid. He says, I, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now I am alive. Look, now I live forevermore. He holds the keys of death and Hades himself. So we don't have to fear that. I mean, like, even though it's, it's this stark, horrible picture, those who have been given Christ and his spirit, we, we know that he is depicted on his throne of judgment, but specifically as the lamb who was slain. The lamb who was slain who died for sinners. And because he's in heaven with that sacrifice, we know that we don't have to fear that day. Um, but, but Satan and all the ungodly who, don't, who do not believe in him will be cast into the lake of fire, into the outer darkness, where they're going to be given over to the things that they want. Um, they're going to be given over to the, the effects of their sin the things that they choose of being apart from God, which means eternal death and torment. Um, it's not something that I like. It's not something that as Christians we have to like, oh yeah, we really have to talk about this a lot and just like be really happy to talk about hell. No, it's, it's a horrible thing. And, we, and it's just, we, we're, we have to believe it because God's word describes it and talks about it in this way. And... Um, this this judgment is all, is found all over the New Testament, where 
Paul says, because of the stubbornness of our hearts and unrepentant heart, we are storing up wrath against ourselves for the day of God's wrath when his, his righteous judgment will be revealed um, for those who do evil. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night when everyone is proclaiming peace and security and that God doesn't really exist, that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And it'll be final and sudden when the Lord is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his angels. And he'll punish those who do not know God or do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So, just as God displays both his wrath and mercy all over the Old Testament, we see that in the New Testament as well, that now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of repentance before this day comes. We're like lodged in between here and we're just waiting for that day to come when he's going to set all things right. But it's also going to bring that judgment as well. Um, yeah. And that day will bring that universal judgment into the world where sin and decay will be banished and all the things that were so wrong with this world will be undone and oh, time will work backwards like C.S. Lewis said by the, because that deeper magic will be shown to be reality that love, that sacrifice of Jesus will undo everything that Satan has brought into this world and, and our sin has brought into this world um, I know that was a lot but any questions or thoughts, comments? So, yeah, so hopefully we understand and see like how essential the ascension was and is for our salvation, um, how magnificent it is, how he's bringing about this new reality that we don't have to worry about being condemned because Satan has been kicked out of the courtroom and, he, and we have his spirit in us that is now at work in us, moving us from one degree of glory to another. Um, yeah, so hopefully in next week, in the next couple of weeks, we'll also be showing how all this connects to what the Holy Spirit is doing now in our lives when we go through that section of the creed um, and what it means to be the church. But I guess we'll end with a word of prayer and before we're done. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this day and we thank you for allowing us this time to study more about your word and what it means that you ascended into heaven and you're seated at the right hand of God. What a glorious reality that you have burst in upon this earth and you're changing us and you're empowering us and you're leading us into the same glory that your son has already entered into. And so we pray, Lord, that as we come to worship you and enter into that holy Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem right now, that you would change us from one degree of glory to another. And it's in your son's name we ask these things by the power of your spirit. Amen.